From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Miles Parks. This hour, the latest on the national secrets leaked in a video game chat room. A suspect is under arrest, but how did it all happen? Also, some baseball history. Did you know the slider was invented by one of the best Native American baseball players ever? And later, actor Bill Hader on how the hitman he plays in HBO's Barry compares to some of his other roles. I think General Custer in Night at the Museum 2 comes pretty close. Uh, no, I'm joking. Flint Lockwood and Cloudy the Chance of Meatballs, I think, you had a similar, similar demons. No, I've never played anything like this. <laughs> it's Saturday, April 15th. Our newscast is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The Biden administration says it will keep fighting to keep a widely used abortion pill on the market. The White House issued a statement after the Supreme Court temporarily halted a Texas judge's ruling that suspended the use of mifepristone. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. The White House says it will continue to stand by the FDA's evidence-based approval of mifepristone and continue to support the FDA's authority to review, approve, and regulate a wide range of prescription drugs. The White House added that the stakes of the fight couldn't be higher in the face of ongoing attacks on reproductive rights. The Biden administration and the manufacturer of mifepristone had asked the high court to intervene. So for now, the pill remains available nationwide. The Supreme Court's order on Mifepristone was issued by Justice Samuel Alito. It is set to expire on Wednesday. President Biden is back at his home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. He returned to the U.S. overnight from his trip to Ireland, where he played up his family's Irish history in one last speech. Here's NPR's Tamara Keith. At a heritage center in County Mayo, President Biden was given the gift of a brick from the Blewett homestead. His great-great-great-grandfather, Edward Blewett, sold bricks 27,000 of them that went into a cathedral at the center of the town of Balina, where thousands gathered in the rain Friday night to give Biden a rock star reception. My friends, people of Mayo, this is a moment to recommit our hearts, our minds, our ardent souls to the march of progress, to lay the foundations brick by brick by brick for a better future for our kids and our grandkids. At one point in the speech, Biden even referred to himself as Mayo Joe. Tamara Keith, NPR News, traveling with the president. Overseas now, intense fighting has broken out in Khartoum. The U.S. ambassador to Sudan tweeted that he was sheltering in place with his embassy team. NPR's Amy Held reports that tensions between separate military forces are threatening to derail a political solution for Sudan. The fighting is between Sudan's army and the unofficial but powerful paramilitary known as the Rapid Support Forces. They said Saturday they had seized the presidential palace as well as airports. International flights coming in to land at Khartoum were turning back. The U.S. ambassador to Sudan, John Godfrey, says he arrived last night only to awaken today to the, quote, deeply disturbing sounds of gunfire and fighting, a situation he calls extremely dangerous. The U.S. and the EU have been backing a deal for a civilian-led transitional government. Four years after a coup ended the autocratic rule of Omar al-Bashir, Now the military power struggle is undermining the civilian pro-democracy movement. Amy Held, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified documents is being held in federal custody until a detention hearing next week. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira of Dighton is charged with two federal crimes under the Espionage Act. WBUR's Yasmin Emmer has more. Court documents alleged Teixeira leaked classified military information as early as December. He allegedly took documents home from his job in cyber defense, photographed them, and uploaded them on social media. Teixeira has had top security clearance since 2021. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says his arrest sends a message. People who uh, sign agreements uh, to be able to receive classified documents acknowledge the importance to the national security of not uh, disclosing those documents. Uh, And uh, we intend to to, uh, send that message, uh, how important it is uh, to our national security. If guilty, Teixeira faces up to 15 years in prison. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Amar. On Boylston Street this morning, a solemn procession. The families of the Boston Marathon bombing victims, accompanied by Mayor Wu, visited the two memorials on this 10th anniversary of the bombings. The explosions killed Martin Richard, Lindsay Liu, and Crystal Campbell. Firefighters are headed back to Sterling this morning to wet down the site of a brush fire that covered dozens of acres. Crews from 15 communities fought the fire that broke out yesterday near the Wachusett Reservoir. It is 50 degrees in Boston with clouds around today, highs in the upper 50s. Some showers likely tonight and lows overnight in the upper 40s. For Sunday, a chance of rain. Tomorrow's highs in the mid 50s. And looking ahead to Monday for the Boston Marathon, cloudy skies, a chance of showers, a high around 60. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. And the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. President Biden says he's directed the military and intelligence communities to take steps to further secure sensitive information. That's after a massive leak of sensitive documents came to light. On Friday, a 21-year-old member of the Air National Guard named Jack Teixeira appeared before a federal judge in Boston. He's facing charges that he leaked highly classified information that include details about Russian moves in Ukraine and the strength of the Ukrainian army. Joining us now to talk about all of this is NPR's Pentagon correspondent, Tom Bowman. Good morning, Tom. Hey, Miles. So what steps can the intelligence community even take after a breach like this? Well, the first thing, obviously, is is to restrict access to who sees this kind of information. Now, there are at least several thousand people who have access to this classified information, which came out of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. Already, the Pentagon is removing people from this information. I was talking with some folks last night who lost that access, and they have high-level jobs. So that will continue. But as far as how many people they're restricting, we just don't know. And then there's this bigger question, right, of how did a 21-year-old IT specialist working in an airbase in Cape Cod even get access to this highly classified information? 
that's what the investigation will determine, and neither the Pentagon nor the Justice Department is really saying much at all right now. I spoke with a retired senior officer who did have access to this kind of intelligence. He speculates that Teixeira likely gained access to something called the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System, or JWICS, Pentagon likes acronyms. That's a secure internet system that would contain all kinds of top secret information. Now, that's how Chelsea Manning, the former Army soldier and whistleblower, convicted back in 2013. That's how she was able to grab thousands of documents and and release them. Now, when that happened, the Pentagon and other agencies put a lot of controls over who had access, limiting them on a need-to-know basis. They created separate groups, also subgroups. So let's say, Miles, you're an intelligence analyst or an officer working on Taiwan issues. After that, you would not be able to have access to anything related to Ukraine. Or let's say you work the Ukraine issue. Maybe you could see some intel on Ukraine, but not the more sensitive information, such as, you know, what's being picked up on Russian communications. Tell me a little bit more, Tom, about why this leak matters more broadly. Well, I'm told the big problem is with release of these kinds of documents, these sensitive documents, is it alerts your adversaries. So the U.S. is picking up electronic communications like phone calls or other information from the Russians. That will all quickly dry up because they can change phone numbers, radio frequencies, do forensics on which information came from which command and which location. It makes it much harder to glean information from the Russians. Huge problem. NPR's Tom Bowman. Thank you so much, Tom. You're welcome. And we turn now to NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Ron, good morning. Good to be with you, Miles. Thanks for being here. So let's start with that leak, again, allegedly by a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard of highly sensitive documents revealing classified information about the role of the U.S. in the war in Ukraine. How is this leak playing out politically? There's a lot of objection being heard from foreign capitals, of course. It's always embarrassing to have eavesdropping revealed. Makes everyone feel seen and heard and not in a good way. Back home, we have outliers such as Marjorie Taylor Greene, congresswoman from Georgia, praising the alleged leaker for being an enemy of President Biden. And you have President Biden trying to play down the damage, while former President Trump calls it the greatest embarrassment ever and then compares it to his own documents issued to dismiss the latter. Uh, Meanwhile, Pentagon officials, as you say, are trying to emphasize that there are processes in place to secure classified information. Now, here's Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder. He's an Air Force Brigadier General fielding questions about the leak on Thursday. Let me just emphasize my point um, that this was a we have rules in place. Uh, Each of us signs a non-disclosure agreement. Anybody that has a uh, has a security clearance. Uh, And so uh, all indications are, again, this is a criminal act, a willful violation of those. uh, And and again, another reason why we're continuing to investigate and support DOJ's investigation. And Miles, the, the, the young man in question here, Jack Teixeira, is accused of being the leaker and has been charged as a spy. Uh, obviously, this is embarrassing. It's not the kind of spying we normally associate with that term. But putting this material on the Internet is extraordinarily effective. The Internet is a great leveler and force multiplier. And the United States might find it's going to be beneficial to Russian military planners. It could be divisive in terms of the NATO alliance and the coalition resisting Russia in Ukraine. So maybe the bottom line question for the moment is this. 
if our government can't manage some degree of computer security in this area, uh, what about other areas? Does this implicitly put us all at risk? Mm. I want to get your thoughts, Ron, on abortion as well, because the Supreme Court has stepped in and paused restrictions on the medical abortion drug mifepristone, at least temporarily, while it looks at a lower court ruling that would have dramatically curbed access to the drug. Now, the Supreme Court's ruling last year, the Dodd decision, seemed to play a big role in last year's elections. What do you think this mifepristone um, fight and then also all the other developments we've seen around abortion, what kind of role is that going to play in 2024? It's always tricky to predict who is going to be galvanized or mobilized on an issue this volatile 18 months in advance of an election. But the big question in the meantime will be what are the other court decisions? What do the courts do between now and then, most especially the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, But right at the moment, based on what we've seen over the past year, it's a question of whether it'll be bad for Republicans or very bad for Republicans. Uh, This issue mobilizes younger voters who otherwise would be less likely to vote. We saw that in Kansas and Kentucky last year. We saw it just this month in Wisconsin. It also motivates women. And when women and young people turn out, Democrats tend to win, especially in swing states. On the Republican side, though, in the primaries, we're likely to see a competition among candidates at all levels to see who can be most clearly and vociferously anti-abortion. And then those Republican nominees will face a very different environment in their November elections. Right. I was thinking exactly that when we saw the news out of Florida where Governor DeSantis this week signed a six-week abortion ban, which we should note wouldn't go into effect until 30 days after the state Supreme Court rules uh, on a challenge to the state's existing 15-week abortion ban. But what are your thoughts on that? Ron DeSantis is all in on abortion restrictions, uh, functional bans in effect, because he knows this is not just a contest with Donald Trump for the nomination for president next year. It's all about winning the beating heart of the Republican Party. And right now, that is still the voters who turned to Trump in 2016. So DeSantis seems to believe that those voters are the present and future Republican Party. And while right now they're mostly still loyal to Trump, that could change. And the only candidate who's clearly capable of beating Trump is Trump. And if this front runner should stumble, this extraordinary front runner who's actually a former president, one way or another, DeSantis wants to make sure the lion's share of Trump's people come to him. He doesn't want to share them with other Republican hopefuls. Moving on to Tennessee now, where two black lawmakers expelled from the Republican-led state house after participating in a protest on gun control, they were reinstated. What did you make of the back and forth in Tennessee? You know, we have to remember all these things were involved gun issues, the murder of children, the stunning willingness, eagerness, in fact, among Republican legislators to oust these two young black colleagues. Had they sanctioned or rebuked them in some other manner, it would not have gone this way. But instead, they put Tennessee in a bad light in front of the whole country. And there's a strong sense around these events that uh, they've created a pair of new aces for the Democratic Party in Tennessee. And they are now instantly recognizable political figures. NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Thanks, Ron. Thank you, Miles. More rain could fall in Broward County, Florida today. That's where massive floods have already shut down government buildings and public schools and displaced hundreds of residents. Some families say they've lost just about everything they own. From member station WLRN, Kate Payne reports. Dozens of cots line the floor of a gym at Holiday Park in Fort Lauderdale. Here, families, dogs, and a parrot are taking shelter. I met Bay Bell outside. She says she's thankful that she made it here alive. 
um, I was rescued by uh, fire and rescue. By the time they got to me, uh, the water was so high, the pressure on the front door, I couldn't get out the front door. So I was literally trapped for hours and hours and hours with no way out. Bell says she had recently moved to the Edgewood neighborhood, just north of the Fort Lauderdale airport, which took on more than two feet of rain. When Bell came home after work on Wednesday, she said her apartment was already full of water. It was just my mattress that was above water at the worst part of it. So, And at one point, the water was so high, all the appliances in the kitchen began to topple over. And I still had electricity, so the water is potentially a current. So it was, it was really a scary situation. The rain might not be over yet. Some of the roads leading to this shelter are still so flooded, it's a challenge just to get here. But Don Beamer made it, and she's grateful. She showed me the photos of her mobile home near the airport. The trailers in her neighborhood look like they're floating on a lake. It'd probably be 40000 to get everything fixed, you know, mildew, remove, all that stuff. And, I mean, is, is that doable for you? No, of course not. It's not doable for anybody that's in the community. Nobody. Beamer says none of her neighbors have flood insurance. She's getting worried about the ones who are still staying in their water-damaged trailers. What's going to happen now, though, is the heat's picking up, and then it's going to be stifling because their air conditionings will not work, and then, you know, the mold is going to start. South Florida was already facing an affordable housing crisis before this storm. Beamer says she has no idea where she and her neighbors will go next. For NPR News, I'm Kate Payne in Fort Lauderdale. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about half an hour to mark today's 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings, three people share their stories from that day and reflect on how they've tried to make sense of the tragedy over the past decade. It's 50 degrees in Boston. Clouds today. Highs in the upper 50s. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gore Place and the 36th Annual Sheep Shearing Festival. Sheep shearing and herding demos, fiber artists, and more. April 22nd in Waltham. GorePlace.org. Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington. WaterstoneLexington.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is back from his trip to Ireland. Air Force One touched down overnight in Delaware, where the president is expected to spend the weekend at his home in Rehoboth Beach. The week-long strike at Rutgers University is over. The university issued a statement overnight saying it has reached a framework on economic issues with the schools of faculty unions, which sought pay increases, better job security for adjunct staff, and guaranteed funding for graduate students. And lawmakers in Montana have approved a full ban on the Chinese-owned social media app TikTok. The state legislature has sent the ban to the governor's desk. TikTok is expected to file a court challenge. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Lately, two issues have been in the news almost every day, abortion and guns. These are also two issues that are really important to young voters. But are they important enough to swing elections? NPR political reporter Elena Moore keeps a close eye on those young voters, and she joins us now. Hey, Elena. Hi, Miles. So let's start with the issue of abortion rights. This was a big part of Democratic messaging in a recent Wisconsin election for an open Supreme Court seat. Liberals did end up flipping the court. How big of a role did young voters play in that election? So we don't have specific data yet, like exit polling, but we do know that turnout was really, really high on college campuses. And we know that in those precincts, there was high support for Janet Protasiewicz, who was the Democratic-backed candidate. And, you know, we can't extrapolate too much about this race. It's just one race. But we do know that abortion as an issue is a motivating factor for young people. You know, even back in November during the midterm elections, voters under 30, so Gen Z and younger millennials actually said that their top issue when voting was abortion. And that's not the case for older generations. And that's all according to Circle Research at Tufts University. On the Republican side, there are voices within the party who have long said that the party needs to bring their policies on abortion more in line with the majority U.S. opinion. The majority of Americans generally favor more access to abortion. Mm -hmm. Have Republicans talked about this issue differently to younger voters than to older voters, for instance? I think they're working on that messaging. I talked to Scott Walker about this. He's the former governor of Wisconsin. Now he has an interesting role with young voters. He's the president of the Young Americas Foundation, which is an organization that works to engage with young conservatives. And Walker told me on the issue of abortion, Republicans do need to work on their messaging. Conservatives overall have to do a better job of explaining not only the pro-life versus the pro-choice position, but in particular when it comes to candidates uh, staking out a reasonable position. Reasonable position is kind of an interesting way to say it. He, he gave me an example. He said in Wisconsin, when he was governor in 2015, he passed a law that would ban abortions after 20 weeks. And what about the gun issue, Elena? How are young voters and how are the parties messaging to those young voters about the gun issue? I mean, it's also a really big issue. It directly affects young people. You know, guns are the leading cause of death among Americans under 19. And young people, voters under 30, three in five think gun laws should be more strict. That's according to new data out of Harvard. And so I talked to Congressman Maxwell Frost about this. He's a Gen Z member of Congress, the first one. He has a bill addressing gun violence. And he told me it's obvious to both Republicans and Democrats that this is an issue young people care about. I think everybody understands it now. But I think that Republicans specifically, they believe, or at least they did believe, that much like other generations, that Gen Z with time would become more and more conservative. And I think what they're seeing is Gen Z and young millennials are not becoming more conservative. 
they're actually kind of just sticking to what they believe in. And traditionally, young voters do vote more liberal. And so that inevitably is going to affect issues like guns and abortion. But the key question for Democrats now is, does this actually get people politically organized? And does this get them to vote? And, you know, we saw that when we looked at Wisconsin. And we've seen that for years now with young people finding their political voice in response to gun violence. Okay, so it seems like Republicans have a little bit of work to do on these two issues. But how does that play into their overall messaging looking ahead at 2024? I mean, it's on their mind. They're going to have to address these kinds of issues, but also they're going to try to remind young people about the issues that they think are really strong within their party. And a big one is on the economy. And we know that young voters do care about the economy. In the most recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, it was the top issue for Gen Z and millennial voters. That's NPR political reporter Elena Moore. Thank you so much, Elena. Thanks, Miles. What's going on in the waters of Lake Tahoe? The lake is the clearest it's been in decades, thanks to some tiny creatures. Essentially, they're, they're little Roombas cleaning up the lake. A conversation about nature's Roombas doing good work at Lake Tahoe. That's tomorrow on Weekend Edition with Aisha Roscoe. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. For more than a century, people have been talking about building a railroad linking all three countries in North America. Well, it's finally happened. Two big freight railroads have merged to create a line that links the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. The idea is that seamless service will make shipping goods across the continent cheaper, safer, and cleaner. But as Frank Morris of member station KCUR, KCUR reports, some people living along the tracks are worried about a big bump in rail traffic. In a rail yard in Kansas City, a couple hundred people turned out yesterday, all dressed up, to mark something that hasn't happened in a quarter century, the birth of a major freight railroad. It's absolutely a historic day. Keith Creel is president and CEO of Canadian Pacific Kansas City, or CPKC. That's the new railroad formed from the merger of Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern. Back in the late 1800s, companies built rail lines spanning the U.S. and Canada. Each one finished with a ceremonial golden spike or last spike. Now today, here we are 140 years later, 142 years later, we'll be driving the final spike. C.P. Casey runs to both coasts of Canada and both coasts of Mexico, connecting through the middle of the United States. Creel says one railroad reaching all those ports and markets will speed up shipping. He says it will mean 64,000 fewer trucks on the road each year, saving lots of fuel and cutting pollution. This is all about growth and opportunity. It's about investment and it's about creating a safer rail network and it's creating capacity that this nation or all three nations have never needed more. A few miles up the tracks from Kansas City in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, the merger looks a little different. It's going to be a major nuisance. Holly Mings and her husband and two children live in a house that backs up to the CPKC tracks. Children, back here. If it's successful, the merger will double rail traffic, rumbling past Mings' house, making it about 14 trains a day for starters. It's going to wake up me and my children in the middle of the night every night. And if the traffic increases nightly, we may not get any sleep. Mings isn't sleeping well anyhow. She's got nightmares about derailments. 
Of course, with all that we're hearing, with all the trains derailing and all the hideous things that are happening, yeah, it freaks me out that it's right there. And in my dream, this oil had spilled out of this train and it was like, see, it was it was coming for, for, for our house. Since the fiery, toxic train crash in East Palestine, Ohio, derailments have been in the news, though actually they happen a lot less often than they used to. But trains tipping over isn't the only concern. In small cities up and down the line, emergency crews worry about ambulance and fire trucks getting held up behind trains cutting through town. In greater Chicago, they're concerned that more freight trains could tie up commuter trains because they share the same tracks. But all this assumes that the $31 billion merger is going to generate a ton of new business. And there's some doubt about that. What's the point? How much transcontinental business is there? This is not a merge and declare victory. They're going to have to fight in the market to attract business and keep it. Ted Prince works for Tiger Cool Express, an intermodal shipping company he co-founded in Overland Park, Kansas. He used to be the senior vice president for intermodal at Kansas City Southern. And Prince says the newly formed CPKC faces stiff competition from bigger railroads. Single line service does not necessarily equate to better service. The Union Pacific has a better route from Chicago to the border. That's not going to change. What has changed is the freight rail map of North America. Now there are two big railroads in the west, two in the east, and two running primarily north and south, one of which is Canadian Pacific Kansas City. And most people in the rail industry expect that setup to hold for decades to come. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. This weekend, the curtain falls on the longest-running show in Broadway history. The Phantom of the Opera, Andrew Lloyd Webber's mega-hit musical, is closing after more than 35 years. Here's Jeff London. The facts are absolutely staggering. Since it opened in January of 1988, The Phantom of the Opera has played almost 14,000 performances to audiences of over 20 million, grossing over $1.3 billion. An estimated 6,500 people have been employed by the Broadway production, and it takes a cast, orchestra, and crew of 125 to put on the show. On Monday, it will all be over. I got the gig of a lifetime. There's no other way to describe it. Actor Richard Poole has been a member of the ensemble, playing small roles for almost 25 years. It's given me the ability to have security, to plan ahead. It gives me discipline and structure in my life, and it gives me a constant way to maintain my craft. My name is Joyce Hammond. I'm concertmaster at Phantom of the Opera, which is first violin, and holy moly, I've been there 33 and a half years. In sleep he sang to me, in dreams he came. Hammond is one of several members of the orchestra to have a phantom baby. Her son, Jackson, just turned 18. This has been his home away from home. People there have watched him grow up. 
He had the pleasure of sitting backstage during Saturday matinee sometime when I wasn't able to get a babysitter. The Phantom of the Opera, for those who've never seen it, is the story of a disfigured genius who haunts the Paris Opera House, pining away for a young soprano, Christine, who's in love with a dashing count. People die, a chandelier crashes to the stage, but love kind of triumphs, all to a sweeping romantic score. You know, the phantom being misunderstood, I think, is a big symbol for a lot of people. Ben Crawford now has the distinction of being the very last phantom to haunt the Majestic Theatre on Broadway. And like other phantoms before him, he has a special relationship with the fans. That's P-H-A-N-S, who visited the show over and over. Some even send him their own artwork. They saw that I had dinosaurs in my room, because when I play with my kids on FaceTime, my son loves dinosaurs. So they 3D printed this velociraptor that's like in a tuxedo with a phantom mask. And it came to my dressing room in a box with like holes in it so it could breathe. Past the point of no return, no backward glances. But even the longest-running show in Broadway history has to close at some point. Producer Cameron McIntosh says Phantom was losing money even before the pandemic. So last September, he and Andrew Lloyd Webber announced a final date. The following week, we were profitable for the first time. So, you know, it was the right decision to take at the right time. And, you know, I think people's memory now is back with people saying Phantom of the Opera is one of the greatest successes of all time, which is what one always prays when a great show finishes. So Phantom is going out with a bang. It's been selling out again. Music supervisor and conductor David Caddick has been around since the very beginning. He was music director for a staged reading on Andrew Lloyd Webber's estate back in 1984. He's conducting the final performances on Broadway. I simply don't know how I'll feel on the morning of the 17th of April. At the moment, it's about maintaining what we have, keeping the show vibrant. I still give notes to the actors, to the orchestra. We will look to maintain every element of the production through to the very last note. Though there are plans for some surprises at the final curtain call. Actor Richard Poole says the closing is bittersweet. I was retiring anyway, so I have a very enviable spot in my life in the fact that I had something to go to, which was nothing. <laughs> for the other 124 people employed by the Phantom of the Opera, it's time to find a new gig. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. You're listening to NPR News. This is Weekend Edition. The Supreme Court has paused until Wednesday, a lower court ruling that sharply limits access to mifepristone, the drug used in most medicated abortions and to treat miscarriages. The case, out of Texas, is one of two that center on the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone 23 years ago. And joining us now to take a closer look at that approval is NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lubkin. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Miles. 
So I'm hoping you can take us back to 2000, the year the FDA actually approved mifepristone. How big of a deal was this? So for the United States, it was a huge deal. It was the first time women seeking abortion didn't need a surgical procedure. But outside the U.S., it really wasn't that groundbreaking. Mifepristone had been approved in some countries for a dozen years at that point. France, China, the United Kingdom, Sweden, these were all places that had the abortion pill starting in the late 80s, early 90s. So there was also a lot of data to show it was safe and effective. But a key criticism from the conservative plaintiffs in this case who want this drug off the market is that the FDA was somehow hasty in their approval of this drug. Is that right? So it actually took four years and was a bit slower than expected. Dr. Joshua Sharfstein is a former deputy commissioner for the FDA and is now a vice dean at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He says the idea that the FDA improperly approved mifepristone just isn't credible. This had the full support of advisory committees. It had the full support of major professional associations. He says it's retained that support after millions of women have received the treatment. And if there's a problem with mifepristone's approval, then there's a problem with a lot of other medicines because this approval was not unusual. So then where does all this confusion about the approval process come from? It comes from the fact that the approval deals with a section of FDA regulation called subpart H that actually has different parts. The part the agency used in the approval allowed it to add safety restrictions, such as requiring that physicians providing the pill be able to diagnose ectopic pregnancies. But another provision, the one they didn't use, allowed for something called accelerated approval, which is where a drug gets approved using preliminary data and the drug maker has to do follow-up studies to confirm it really works after the fact. Again, they didn't use that one. But some of the critics have maintained incorrectly that the agency did. Okay, so then what data was used for this FDA approval? So keeping in mind that this drug had been approved in various countries for years, there was a ton of data already out there. One study included more than 16,000 patients, but the approval itself was based on two pivotal French studies and one U.S. study with similar safety and efficacy findings. Since the approval relied in part on the French data and the French health system is different from the U.S. health system, regulators and the FDA's advisors wanted to add those safety restrictions we talked about. They were really concerned about patients not coming back for their follow-up appointments, for example. But the FDA figured over time, as more study data came in, some of those restrictions would come off, and they did. So I'm hoping you can answer kind of a larger question. Considering that this FDA approval is more than 20 years old, why is this even up for debate right now? So there's a statute of limitations that comes into play, and it's six years. So that means that, in theory, the drug's original approval 23 years ago shouldn't be subject to second-guessing. However, the appeals court also left open the question of whether the loosening of mifepristone's restrictions over time essentially constitute a new kind of approval and therefore give plaintiffs standing to keep going with the court challenge. That said, mifepristone's approval has been questioned many times. The Senate Health Committee asked for a GAO report looking into the approval, for example. And every time the FDA's decision has been validated and supported. Meanwhile, millions of women have taken mifepristone without problems. That's NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lubkin. Thank you so much, Sydney. You bet. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Nearly 10,000 participants are making their way through the Back Bay for the BAA's 5K. It's one of the many events taking place today leading up to Monday's Boston Marathon. Many roads in the Back Bay are closed. Today marks the 10th anniversary of the Marathon bombings. This morning, the families of the victims paused at the two memorials on Boylston Street. This afternoon, at the hour of the bombings a decade ago, 
Governor Healy and Mayor Wu will lead a ceremony at the finish line. Across the city, dozens of community projects are being held today in the day of service known as One Boston Day. Old North Church in Boston's North End is marking its 300th anniversary on this date. In 1723, the cornerstone was put in place for what is now Boston's oldest standing church building. It's 50 degrees in Boston with clouds around today and highs in the upper 50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Luke Burbank expressed some skepticism about a new law in Utah that keeps minors from using social media. I don't feel like there's a strong history of keeping people off of websites. Well, the thing is, I'm Peter Sagal. You don't have to prove anything to listen to this week's news quiz with champion beatboxer Kayla Malady. Join us for Wait, Wait from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to develop new lung cancer therapies based on the discovery of the EGFR mutation. More about this momentum of discovery at DanaFarber.org stories. From LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against tax identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR and from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Okay, picture this. It's 1911. You're at the World Series, the Philadelphia Athletics, and the New York Giants are dueling it out for the title. It ends with the Philly A's winning a thrilling six-game series. Two of the star players are Charles Bender of the A's and John Myers of the Giants. Before the 1911 series, they posed on the field together, prompting the New York Times to print this offensive line. Maybe they wish they had tomahawks in their hands instead of a bat and a baseball. It's just one example of the racism that these two star native athletes endured. But Bender and Myers dominated the series, and that's the story of Contenders, a picture book for young readers by Tracy Sorrell and Aragon Star. They join me now. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. And happy baseball season. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess let's just start with these two characters who your book centers on. Tracy, can you tell us about Charles Bender? Charles is an Ojibwe young man who is moved from his home reservation in what is now Northwest Minnesota to boarding schools in the Pennsylvania area, first in Philly and then later to Carlisle. And that's where he learns the game of baseball and develops into an amazing pitcher. He's the inventor of the slider pitch, and he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I know, that blew my mind when I saw that he was the inventor of the slider, which is a pitch now that's thrown by, you know, a number of pitchers in the majors. Yeah, every every game, right? Someone is throwing a slider pitch. And I was like, why don't young people know this? You know, this is a key part of today's game. Yeah. Arrogant, 
Tell me a little bit about John Myers. Oh, he's a local boy done good. And I say that because I'm based here in Los Angeles. Uh, John was from the Cahuilla Reservation um, out near Riverside, California. Just one of many Indian kids that loved to play baseball. As a scrappy youth, he went around to some colleges. They found out he hadn't even graduated high school, but there he was playing for Dartmouth. Um, but he gained attention. The scouts saw him. They found him. And, uh, you know, he joined the game a little bit later than a lot of the kids do these days. But there he was. I have to say, I consider myself kind of a student of baseball history. I had when I was a kid, my mom got me a book that was like the 100 greatest baseball games of all time. And I read it front to back like 15 times. And yet I'm embarrassed to say I had not heard of these guys who played a really prominent role in early baseball history. Can you guys talk to me about how how you came to the story, and then also how you researched it to be able to put this book together. Sure. My um, husband is uh, also an ardent baseball fan. And so he was reading this book and he said, have you heard about the Indian against Indian World, World Series? 1911, uh, the press labeled it the Indian against Indian. And I said, who played? What was this? So I, I started reading about it. And then I immediately wanted to know, okay, where did these two men come from? What's their backstory? It was just fascinating to me. So as much as I wanted to share the story of young readers and the accomplishments of these men, they also have very different paths that they get to the game by. At that time, there's not a lot of in-depth interviews with either one of them. So it was piecing it together with what interviews there, there were about their childhood. So very different realities, and yet they both rise to the highest level in the sport and play against each other. As far as like doing the research, it was a lot of fun to dive into history and especially like the history of New York baseball, because there were so many teams and um, sharing the polo grounds and then the whole history of the polo grounds about it burned to the ground, yet months later it came back, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. And our native people were there. That impresses me to no end because people always think, you know, it ended in 1890 or something and, oh, they rode off into the sunset and it's the end of the trail. However, we have always been there and we have been on the forefront. We're inventing things. We're in it. We're in the mix, always in the mix. Well, and you all really honestly paint the racism and obstacles that these two men went through to get to the highest point in this sport. But this is a children's book, right? I mean, so how did you kind of weigh, including some of those really heavy topics in a book that's aimed at, at young people? Well, I mean, the reality is young people see that and experience that all the time. And I think it's it's very much in their face today. So in that part, it's like, well, just understand this is a continuation. Like you can go to a Braves game today and you see that. You can go to the Chiefs games today and you see that these athletes today are still playing in those kind of environments where our culture is mocked. Does that come into conflict as you, you're sitting here talking to me wearing a San Diego Padres shirt, you're drinking from a Kansas City Royals <laughs> cup, you clearly love the game still. How do those two things mm -hmm. interact with each other? My hope is that by exposing this and helping young people to see that, that we can grow more awareness of respecting all of us as humans. And by helping young people to know that we have always had a presence in the game, you've still got... Ryan Helsley, Adrian Hauser, you know, John Gray, who are all right-handed pitchers like Bender in the game today. 
that they deserve to be able to play with the respect and be able to do their jobs just like any other athlete out on the field. The art in this book is is so gorgeous. And I think about a key part of Native heritage is storytelling. And yet I have to imagine you guys did not grow up with a lot of children's books that were about this sort of stuff that looked like this. How important was it to make something like this? It was incredibly important to bring this story to our Native kids because they see the outside world and they don't see themselves in it in these kids' books. And if they do see themselves in the books, it's highly stereotyped and certainly not, you know, what they see at home. And a lot of the misconceptions about our Native people too are, oh, they're all, you know, have horrible lives and live in poverty and da 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 da. You know, however, that's not always the case. Some of us actually had two parents and grew up and went to school and did amazing things. And I was so thrilled to be able to bring these incredible lives to light because we are forgotten. Everybody thinks of the lovely Jackie Robinson and that is a well-told tale. And we, I love Jackie because I love the Dodgers, but these guys were there way before that. <laughs> well, while I have you guys here, I have to ask, uh, what do you make of the new rules? Any thoughts? I'm liking the new rules. There's something more exciting about seeing those ground balls go through the hole. You know, like they used to be, ah, oh, the shift, ah, oh, they're going to hit their, ah, oh. it was so, I don't know, mechanical or something. But now it's darn exciting. I feel the exact same way. I feel like that's a ground ball that should have gone through. And for a while, yes. we had a couple of years where it was like, oh, why is yes. that? And now we're back. Whoa. Now it's like, ah, oh, yeah. it feels like oh, baseball yeah. again, yeah. right? Yeah. It sure does. Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm definitely over the shift, but I just don't feel like someone should be on second base if they haven't done the work to get to second base. Fair enough. Yes, fair enough. Well, uh, <laughs> what about those big bases? Ooh. Yeah, exactly. I like the shorter games. I like the shorter games, though. Yes. That's Tracy Sorrell and Arrogant Star. Their new book is Contenders, and it's out now. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Mado, Kapichihi, my mother thanks you, my grandmother thanks you, and what a pleasure to be on your show, Miles. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Today marks 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. The attack is etched in the memories of those who participated in the race as competitors, volunteers, or spectators, and those who treated the injured in hospitals. This morning, three people share their stories from that day and how they've tried to make sense of it since. Finish line coordinator Tom Marr, spectator Tracy Palmer, and Dr. Timothy Peck. Here are their reflections. My name is Tom Marr. I live in Duxbury, Massachusetts, and I'm 80 years old. Well, it was a, it was a normal day. Things went the way they went. The winners came. They got their awards. We, you know, that's the most important part of what I do. Then they're gone, and then it's the average people. Um, and at two thirty in the afternoon, it's you know, I, I call it I call it la la time because it's just so nice being out there. You know, I just keep people moving. I can still picture in my mind the wave of the concussion of the blast. Uh, it was it was smoky, it was dirtyish looking, um, and I ran to help. And then I turned and looked on the sidewalk, and then the second bomb went off. But I wasn't uh, afraid. I never thought of being afraid. I never thought that um, what I was doing wasn't the right thing to do. 
Should I have turned and run away? How could I ever do that? At the time, I was in charge of that area. I couldn't run away. It was my turf. My name is Tracy Palmer. I'm 59, and I live in Norwell, Massachusetts. So I was standing on Boylston Street, um, close to the barricades with my two daughters. And we were there waiting for my husband to come into view. And then there was an explosion across the street, um, maybe 50 feet from us. And I just grabbed my daughter's hands. I just like turned and ran and everybody was doing the same thing. My name is Timothy Peck. I am 42 and I currently live in Southern Indiana outside Louisville, Kentucky. I was in the Beth Israel Deaconess Emergency Department. It was actually my first day as chief resident uh, of the emergency department and um, didn't expect that day to turn out like it did. The first patients to arrive by ambulance had injuries that I had never seen before, had injuries that I didn't even understand what they were. I made a phone call to my wife and said, um, honey, a bomb just went off here. What message, because she was, didn't answer. A bomb just went off here, I'm okay, call the girls. And then I had this urge, this desire to take a step forward to go to try to help. And then I caught myself, stop. You got professional medical people going there. You stand right here. And I honestly didn't know where to go. I wasn't sure if another bomb would go off because now there had been two. Who's to say there wouldn't be a third? And then I just popped into my head that I need to find my husband. I knew he would find out pretty soon what had happened at the finish line and he knew we would, were there waiting for him. And I couldn't stand the thought of him thinking that we weren't okay. I was in the emergency department until you know, midnight that night working and I didn't really understand what was going on out there and it didn't matter because we were just treating patient to patient to patient. I went home that night and I could not sleep. I just was full of adrenaline actually and confusion. There was nowhere to ground because uh, everything was so unfamiliar. The girls slept in our room for like two months after that. And the youngest slept in my bed for like several months. They wouldn't go near the city, like any city, like anything other than like our little town. Um, it was too, it was too scary. I mean, it sounds cliche, but um, even today, if I'm getting really frustrated with them about something, <laughs> or some stupid thing happens, I remember that day and how I promised myself that I was gonna let that stuff go, because it really isn't worth it. But I think we've sort of processed through it enough that you know, we can look at it in the way we choose to. I always remember the policeman who ran toward that explosion and toward that smoke. I'm like, that amazes me to this day. It's a great feeling that people 
you know, there are good people out there. I didn't have any really stress or trauma or, or anything like that on the on the bombing day. Or I didn't perceive it, obviously, but but I had it, right? And I hadn't faced it. And I was um, eventually needed to because it was eating at me. So that's when I started to explore perhaps running the Boston Marathon. I'm not a runner. <laughs> I wasn't a runner. I guess I'm a runner now. I think I learned that when you need to heal, it takes a community, it takes vulnerability, and I think those lessons I've carried forward since. This is year 27 of uh, the finish line, greeting the winners. The most important thing for me is I am not going to be driven off doing something I love doing because I'm afraid that something might happen again in my life. I don't want to give a terrorist that satisfaction. It's always great when the ups are there, but when the downs come, you can't cave in. You can't go sit in the corner and cry. I tell people, don't ever say, that could never happen to me. But that would never happen here. Yes, it can. Yes, it has. And hopefully, I hope and pray for you that it never happens to you. You don't know. The Boston Marathon, to me, is the greatest marathon in the world. And how lucky am I to be at the finish line of it every year. I'm a lucky man, and I have the greatest, greatest appreciation for that. That was Tom Marr, Tracy Palmer, and Tim Peck reflecting on the Boston Marathon bombings and how they've moved forward since. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's, the joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington now through April 23rd, HuntingtonTheater.org. The Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass, advising buyers and sellers in today's changing real estate market. More at mraboston.com slash WBUR. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes, our story from Boylston Street in Boston, where people reflect on today's 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings. It is 50 degrees in Boston, clouds today, and highs reaching the upper 50s. Some showers likely tonight, lows in the upper 40s. A chance of some rain tomorrow, Sunday's highs in the mid-50s. And looking ahead to Monday for the Boston Marathon, you can expect cloudy skies, a chance of showers, and a high around 60 degrees. Tax Day.
day is upon us. And even though it comes every year, it can still be pretty daunting. One of the major mistakes people make is just not keeping records of things that they might need to have to prove to the IRS that what they're claiming on their tax forms is true. I'm Alyssa Nadwarney, debunking tax myths and how to avoid common mistakes. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Miles Parks. This hour, mortgages and credit card debt are exponentially more expensive than they were a year ago. But the Fed says they aren't done raising rates. We need to slow the economy to get things back into balance. But slowing the economy when we're off on such a fast pace doesn't mean recession. It means slowing the economy back to a more sustainable pace. Also, the Supreme Court is taking a look at a lower court's ruling that would have severely restricted access to the abortion drug mifepristone. And poet Maggie Smith, her poem Good Bones went viral in 2016, but her marriage fell apart soon after. We talked to her about her new memoir. It's Saturday, April 15th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The abortion drug mifepristone remains available for now. The U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a lower court ruling that dramatically limited access to the pill that's used in the majority of abortions today. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports. In response to an emergency appeal from the Justice Department, the court blocked a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling until midnight next Wednesday. That gives the anti-abortion group that brought the case time to reply to a Justice Department appeal and time for the justices to decide whether to block the lower court's order for a longer period in order to enable the justices to further consider the matter. In its appeal, the Justice Department said that the lower courts had countermanded the scientific judgment the FDA has maintained across five administrations and nullify the approval of a drug that has been safely used by millions of Americans over more than two decades. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. To New Jersey now, where a week-long strike at the state's largest public university has come to an end. And Bruce Conviser reports that classes are to resume immediately. The agreement between Rutgers University and its striking faculty calls for dramatic salary increases across the board. Adjuncts will see their pay jump some 44 percent, postdoctoral fellows nearly 28 percent, and tenured faculty will see a 14 percent raise. The adjuncts are also gaining increased job security. Rutgers operates under a $5 billion annual budget. How exactly the higher salaries will be paid for is not immediately clear, but tuition hikes for the 67,000 students are thought to be unlikely. Both sides credited Governor Phil Murphy with forcing them into marathon negotiating sessions once the strike began. It was the first strike of its kind at Rutgers since it was founded more than 250 years ago. For NPR News, I'm Bruce Convisor in Greenbrook, New Jersey. Overseas, police in Japan say a 24-year-old man has been arrested after he appeared to throw a smoke bomb at Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. 
The suspect was quickly pounced on by security guards after a loud explosion at a campaign event in western Japan. The suspect's motivation is still unclear. The BBC's Shimito uh, Halil reports from Tokyo. The Prime Minister Fumio Kishida was due to give a speech in support of a local politician from his ruling party for the upcoming local elections. After the attack, Mr. Kishida addressed a crowd in another location and said the incident should not disrupt the electoral process. Japan's government spokesman told reporters it was unforgivable that such violence took place during an election campaign. Violent attacks are extremely rare in Japan. But there is nervousness about security around politicians after the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was fatally shot in July last year during a speech in the western city of Nara. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Events to mark the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings are underway. This morning, families of the victims paused quietly at the two memorials on Boylston Street. A public ceremony takes place at the finish line this afternoon at the hour of the explosions a decade ago. Boston Athletic Association President Jack Fleming will be there. We will gather to remember, reflect, and celebrate the resilient spirit of Boston 10 years on. And by Monday afternoon, we'll celebrate where Boston, not only the Boston Marathon, is now. Volunteers across the city are taking part in public service projects in an effort known as One Boston Day. Nearly 10,000 participants are involved in the warm-up to Monday's marathon. The BAA's 5K is wrapping up on Boylston Street. The race has shut down streets in the Back Bay. Events throughout Boston today will shut down several streets in the city. Around 400 history buffs will descend on Minuteman National Historical Park in Concord today. They'll dress in costumes authentic to 1775 and reenact aspects of the first battle of the American Revolution, complete with musket fire. Jennifer Pierce is the park's visitor service manager. She says the free event is a great opportunity for people to reflect on what liberty means to them. The land has seen many transformations over the past many decades. But it is a place for visitors to come and enjoy the beauty of the area, but also know that they are standing in the footprints of history. The event kicks off at 9.30 this morning. You can get more information on the Minuteman website. The playoffs begin this afternoon at the Garden for the Celtics. It is game one of the series against the Atlanta Hawks. Last night, the Red Sox beat the Angels 5-3. to They meet again this afternoon at Fenway. Tonight, the Revs are in Columbus. It is 54 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the upper 50s. Some showers likely tonight and tomorrow, a chance of rain. Sunday's highs in the mid-50s. For the Boston Marathon on Monday, cloudy skies, a chance of showers, a high around 60. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Scott Simon is off this weekend. The fight over abortion rights is again before the Supreme Court. The court has temporarily suspended a lower court's ruling that would have dramatically limited access to mifepristone, the pill that's used in the majority of medical abortions and is also used to treat miscarriages. For what happens next, we turn now to NPR senior political editor and correspondent, Domenico Montanaro. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, Miles. So, 
What does this decision from the Supreme Court mean as far as access to this medication? For now, it means everything is as it was. I mean, in response to the Justice Department's emergency appeal, the court put a stay through Wednesday on the controversial Texas ruling, which had found that the Food and Drug Administration improperly approved of the abortion medication Mifepristone, despite it having been approved two decades ago. It also put a pause on a finding by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that would cut back when the drug would be available during a pregnancy from 10 weeks to just seven and would not allow it to be available through the mail. It's unclear what the court is going to do next, but you know, this is another political lightning rod that's made its way to the Supreme Court as anti-abortion rights activists in state after state continue to push more and more of these restrictive laws. Right. You mentioned politics there. And the 2024 primary field, especially on the Republican side, is already starting to fill up. Have any candidates mentioned this? Notably, the leading Republican candidate, former President Trump, has been pretty much silent about this. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who has not announced an official run yet, is the only one to explicitly praise the Texas ruling. Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who also is expected to run and not a candidate yet, signed a six-week ban this past week, which is not very popular nationally. But he was getting a lot of pushback from conservative activists about the 15-week ban that was in place in Florida. They believe that didn't go far enough. There are a lot of others who are running or might run who seem frustrated by this or haven't quite gotten their messages down on it. Like who? Well, I'm thinking about Tim Scott in particular, the South Carolina senator who's launched an exploratory committee this week. Earlier this week, he said he would, quote, definitely sign a 20-week ban if one came to his desk as president. But he went even further talking to NBC News. If I were president of the United States, I would literally sign the most conservative pro-life legislation that they can get through Congress. Even if it was six weeks? I'm not going to talk about six or five or seven or ten. And Domenico, how is the American public kind of viewing all of this? Right now, it's really clearly putting Republicans into something of a bind. You know, a lot of these red states that have been pushing some of these laws are really outside the mainstream bounds of what's been popular overall. You know, Americans are in favor of some restrictions on abortion, but generally overall in favor of abortion being legal in most or all cases. You know, some Republicans we've heard from on Capitol Hill have either said nothing, or they've been saying that banning medication abortion, for example, just goes too far or really don't want to wade in on it. A lot of Republicans have tried to push back on Democrats saying that they're extreme, wanting to allow abortions until birth, which isn't really true by and large. You know, Democrats did pass a bill last year that would have essentially codified Roe, saying nothing could be banned before 24 weeks in states and that abortions would be legal afterward only if deemed medically necessary by a doctor. But what's happening in practice here are these far more restrictive bans that have been pushed in several conservative states. And, you know, President Biden, who's for all intents and purposes going to run for re-election, can really just stake out a middle position while Republicans really try to out-conservative each other. NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you so much. You're welcome. We got some good economic news this week. Inflation eased last month. Even the price of eggs is coming down. But as they say, do not count your chickens before they hatch. Not all of the economic news is so encouraging. Retail sales are down and more people are applying for unemployment benefits. So is the country headed to recession? That's the question that we bring to NPR's Scott Horsley, who's going to help us sort through all of this. Hey, Scott. Good morning. Good morning. So we know that one of the biggest engines 
for the U.S. economy is consumer spending, people spending their money. Is that engine starting to sputter? Maybe just a bit. Retail sales were down in March for the second month in a row. Uh, People spent less money on cars and furniture and appliances. Grocery sales were flat, even though grocery prices actually came down last month for the first time in two and a half years. Uh, You mentioned that big drop in egg prices, down almost 11% last month. Tom Charlie runs a chain of grocery stores in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, He says a lot of people cut back on eggs earlier this year when the price topped $5 a dozen. They might not be telling you to your face that, hey, your prices are too high, but they are definitely making statements with their buying behavior. Now egg production is bouncing back after a lot of the laying hens were wiped out earlier in the year by avian flu. Prices are coming back to earth, and Charlie says egg sales are pretty much back to normal. I'm sure a lot of listeners are thrilled to hear that grocery prices are down a little bit, but what's happening with inflation more broadly? It is easing. Overall prices in March were up 5% from a year ago. That's the smallest annual increase in almost two years. Uh, Certainly, it's a big improvement from last summer when inflation was topping 9%. But Chris Waller, who sits on the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors, says a lot of that big price swing in both directions comes down to gas and groceries. A lot of that run up and run down is just food and energy, particularly energy. So it's not really telling you what's going on underneath for kind of all the other goods and services. Core inflation has just literally gone like this, sideways. We need to get that down to get closer to our 2% target. Core inflation strips out those food and energy prices, which tend to bounce around a lot, and focuses on more persistent price changes. In particular, the Fed's watching the price of services like restaurant meals and haircuts. And service inflation remains stubbornly high. That's why the Fed is expected to raise interest rates again next month. But that could be the last rate hike we see for a while. You know, ever since the collapse of Silicon Valley and signature banks last month, other banks have been cutting back on lending. Waller says that works like an additional rate hike, slowing down the economy and doing some of the Fed's inflation-fighting work for it. Okay, so I think the question that I have asked you multiple times over the last year, and I'm going to ask you again, what are the chances that the U.S. economy doesn't just slow down but actually heads into recession this time? A lot of people are worried about that, and some forecasters think the odds of a recession have gone up because of that drop in bank lending. Uh, The Fed's own staff now predicts a mild recession starting later this year, with a recovery then coming in 2024 and 2025. Most Fed policymakers, though, are not that gloomy, at least in public. Mary Daly heads the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. We need to slow the economy to get things back into balance. But slowing the economy when we're off on such a fast pace doesn't mean recession. It means slowing the economy back to a more sustainable pace. It's going to feel different than it did last year. But my outlook is we don't have a recession, but we do have a substantial slowdown. Some sectors are already feeling that. Manufacturing output was down last month. Of course, the housing market's taken a hit. On the plus side, though, we're still adding a lot of jobs every month, and the unemployment rate is still near a half-century low. So stay tuned. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Today marks 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. The attack by the finish line killed three spectators and wounded 281 people. Here's Sharon Brody of member station WBUR. On a windy April afternoon, Boylston Street in Boston's Back Bay is bustling. Work crews are building temporary bleachers for Monday's Boston Marathon. The sidewalks are full of people, many stopping to snap photos of the marathon finish line. Some others also pause at the marathon bombing memorials 
to remember the lives lost on April 15, 2013. Eight-year-old Martin Richard, 23-year-old Lindsay Liu, and 29-year-old Crystal Campbell. This stretch of Boylston Street is familiar turf to Ed Jacobs, who's walking through the construction zone on his way to lunch. Jacobs is the technical producer of the marathon. He's worked on the race since he was a teenager. 52 marathons. I've been here at the finish line. It's the grand dame of all races in the world. Everybody looks to Boston. And everybody shows up in and around Boston. Hundreds of thousands of folks line the 26.2-mile route, cheering on tens of thousands of competitors. The marathon captures the heart of the region in a celebration of the human spirit. That's part of why the bombings felt like such a betrayal. Jacobs and his family escaped physical injury 10 years ago, but the shock reverberates. I mean, I was 200 feet away from the bombs when they went off. My wife was sitting in the bleachers across the street. And, you know, that's something you just don't forget. To honor the victims and salute the resilience and generosity of the public, the city turns April 15th into one Boston day, devoted to acts of service. Today's 10th anniversary events include a ceremony on Boylston Street this afternoon. Ed Jacobs will cue a bell ringer in the historic church that overlooks the scene. And that sends shivers up and down my spine when I hear those bells, because that tells me we're back at the finish line, we're back at the Boston Marathon, and that's a piece of it. Just beneath that church bell tower, Sarah Fink of Chelmsford, Massachusetts, relaxes in a park with her husband and three young children. They've visited the marathon finish line, and she says it's important to her to reflect on the tragedy. I think it would be naive to think that it hasn't changed us. I think we all have changed just given how fragile life is. But Fink says she and her husband try to teach their kids that kindness matters and that being good makes a difference. Those people that helped in 2013 after the bombing inspired other people. They inspired people to do something else that would be positive and bring some light after something so dark. Ed Jacobs agrees, having spent more than half a century in a career supporting the Boston Marathon and having grieved the losses of 2013, Jacobs says he keeps his focus on what works. It's a black mark. And yet we continue. We, you know, we, we, we got to live on and we have to do things in their memories. This afternoon, officials will dedicate a new commemorative finish line. The 127th Boston Marathon takes place Monday. For NPR News, I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. You're listening to NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. Coming up in about five minutes, Maggie Smith discusses her new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, zoonewengland.org. Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com WBUR. And BU School of Theater and College of Communication, taking audiences behind the scenes of an original TV comedy pilot, April 27th to May 6th, 
More at bu.edu slash CFA. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Boston is marking the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing that left three people dead and more than 250 others injured. There will be a wreath-laying ceremony today, and Bostonians are being encouraged to engage in a day of community service. The next hearing for the suspect in the leak of classified U.S. intelligence documents is set for Wednesday morning. 21-year-old Jack Tashira was charged yesterday and remains in custody in Boston. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Vietnam as part of the Biden administration's push to counter China's influence in the region. Blinken met with Vietnam's prime minister today, two weeks after the 50th anniversary of the U.S. military withdrawal. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. In the days before Russia invaded Ukraine, Irina Sahan was helping her kindergarten students plant African violets for their mothers. They filled the plastic pots to the brim with dirt with little sprouts at the center. When they finished, the plants sat, ready to grow, full of potential, along the windows of their classroom in the northeast city of Kharkiv. But then the missile attacks began, and schools in Kharkiv closed. Now more than a year later, Sahan and NPR's Alyssa Nadwarni went back to that classroom. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what it's like to be in this classroom. This isn't what you left in February. All you see is the emptiness, Irina Sahan tells me. All you hear is the silence. Students haven't been here since the invasion. Now everything is online. But Irina's come back to help me understand what it used to be like. There was a hairdressing stand over there and a train set over there, she says. It's a place I'm really proud of. Arena, who is patient and kind, has been a kindergarten teacher for three decades. She opens the lockers, still filled with students' clothes and shoes. Those students are now spread around Ukraine and the world. But Arena and her husband stayed here in Kharkiv to take care of her elderly mother. Her days are no longer filled with giggles and discoveries. Instead, she reads the news, navigates the ongoing power outages, and nurses her mother. I am stuck. I am waiting, she says. Everything is on pause. She says it's like a pie where you made the dough but never baked it. Or an item you started to sew 
but only got a chance to cut the fabric. She tells me she doesn't let herself get too sad or too stressed about her situation. You can't let children see you are scared or that something is wrong, she says. You have to be cheerful, you have to smile and comfort the children. I've always done that. It's who I am now. Is that exhausting? No, she says. It's my life. But she's not in denial. I know that this is what happens. These students, they weren't going to be in my class forever. They would have moved on to first grade. Plus, she's been keeping tabs on them. She pulls up her phone. She's been following them on social media and in a group text chat. She pulls up a video of one boy, 13 hours away in western Ukraine. Parents and students frequently send her messages, telling her how much they miss her. Irina Leonidovna, she's just wonderful. Irina is best one. Let's da. go. She's got a gift. She can see and feel the children. She is more than teacher, you know, because she is uh, like a second mom. What do you remember from your kindergarten? I wonder what you would say to your your former students as they're starting their new lives around the world. <laughs> Irina touches her hand to her heart. I would want to give each of the children a hug, she says. That's how we started each morning, before the invasion. Oh. Irina runs her hands over the stacks of tables and chairs. The classroom has been packed up, the books and toys put away. But there are certain things she's left intact. The names of the children from last February are still pinned on the lockers and on their nap time beds. I can't bring myself to remove them, Irina says. Not until a new group of students fill the desks. Will you show us the African violets? Not all of them survive, she says. She points to a handful with big green leaves. But some did. She and other teachers have been watering them. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. The L.A. band La Santa Cecilia came up playing weddings and quinceañeras. Now they're celebrating 15 years of success with a new album. It's a mix of songs paying homage to their heritage and the Mexican musicians they listened to as kids growing up in Los Angeles. I didn't really learn this music from recordings. I learned it from, from live musicians. Later today on All Things Considered, music journalist Beto Arcos catches up with the band La Santa Cecilia for music and conversation around a campfire in Mexico's wine country. Listen on your phone or computer, or just turn on the radio. In 2016, a poem titled Good Bones went viral. You might remember it. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. That's Maggie Smith reading the first lines of her poem. It electrified her writing career, and it changed her life in a multitude of other ways as well. She writes all about that, what happened before and after, 
in her new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. And she joins us now. Hi, Maggie. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm wondering if we can start there. Talk me through what it was like when Good Bones went viral. As a you know, middle-aged mom of two young kids in central Ohio, <laughs> it's hard to overstate how completely bewildering and wonderful and confusing and strange and thrilling that was. Um, I'd been writing for years and years and had published a couple of books at that point, but the poetry readership is generally sort of small and discerning. And so that poem widened my readership in a way I just, I couldn't have anticipated. The memoir touches a lot on your work, but it really focuses on the end of your marriage. Tell us a little bit about your husband and then what happened to your marriage after this poem went viral. Well, I mean, we are a couple with two kids and we both worked, although he worked out of the house and I worked inside the house and was the primary caregiver. And that is probably where the issue sort of stems from. I think many of us have had changes in our marriage that require some sort of recalibration. And in most cases, we're able to plan for them. But a poem going viral isn't something that you can plan for. And it's not something that you can sit down with your spouse and say, I'm about to get a ton of requests to travel. And as the primary caregiver, I'm going to need to hand things off to you in order to do this because this has been my dream my whole life. Maybe with some planning, it could have been different, but it caused a lot of tension. One of the striking moments in the book for me was that moment where I believe it was your husband's attorney used air quotes around the phrase, your work. Can you talk about that moment and just kind of this idea of your work being considered legitimate? Yeah, I mean, some of it, honestly, is when you're in the arts, your work doesn't look necessarily like other people's jobs. My work might look like going to a city and giving a reading at a bookstore. It might look like teaching a class in another city for a week or going to a literary festival. And it might look more fun than work should look. But yes, yeah, so I think in part, there is a sort of diminishment of working in, in a creative field. I think in part, if you're not the primary earner, you know, there may have been some resentment about the time that it took up not being, quote, worth it. It's hard to know. I also want to talk about the format of this book. It reads almost like a diary. You know, it, it moves. You kind of revisit ideas that were a few pages back and you say, actually, here, here's how I think about it now or is my, my view on this is kind of changing. How did you come to format it this way or write it this way? Well, I knew early on it would be vignettes because I'm a poet. And compression, concision, lyricism, a focus on metaphor, a focus on image, these are all things that I'm, you know, dragging from my poetry toolkit into my prose. And I wanted to not only tell the story, but to help the reader feel the experience. And I figured if I'm going to be this vulnerable in the telling, I want to be able to show up and really talk person to person. Like my kids' math homework, the teacher says, don't just give me the answer, show your thinking. So I wanted to be able to show my thinking in this book. The fundamental issues in your and your ex-husband's relationship, how much of them were unique to you, your and his kind of dynamic and personalities versus how much of this 
is systemic, like just from the fact that we live in a patriarchal society. Were you able to parse between those two things at all? I think the patriarchal foundation of it is huge. I don't know exactly how much of the pie chart, if I had to color it in, is that, you know, what the sort of invisible labor, the power dynamics in a marriage, the balancing of work and motherhood, um, the considering the worth and value of your time, even if you're not making most of the actual money. All of these things are huge. And then you add something really particular, like a viral poem into the mix. And in some ways now looking at it, I'm like, well, that's, I think, what we call a perfect storm. I have to ask, too, I am a child of divorced parents. And honestly, your ex-husband does not come across looking great after reading this book. And I was thinking about how much you thought about what you wanted to share, considering your two children are probably going to read this book or may have already read some of it at this point. My parents have grappled for a long time, even now that I'm an adult, with how much of their personal relationship to share with me and my brothers. How much did you grapple with that? Oh, a ton. I mean, my kids are sort of always my first consideration about how I talk about myself. And that's that's really why I say I can only speak for myself. And I'll also say really not much of this book will be a surprise or is a secret. And I don't I don't believe in family secrets. I think family secrets are poison. I think kids usually know more than we're telling them. If and when they choose to read this book, probably what we'll do is sit down and have a conversation beforehand so that we can talk our way through it. Have you heard from your ex-husband about the book or did you talk to him before it published? No. And you haven't heard since? No. Do you does it matter, I guess, how he feels about any of this? I'm asking genuinely, I don't know the answer. I don't know that there is an answer. I think I just got to a point in my life where I decided not to make decisions for myself based on anxiety and fear and all I can do is sort of approach the project with honesty and integrity and and do my best to keep to keep it centered on my own experience and and I've done my best at that. There is so much grief and pain in this book and throughout this time that you write about. How are you doing now, now that the book is done? I mean, has it helped you find any of the peace that it seems like you were looking for? Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> you know, I am I am doing really well. I mean, it it was a really emotional writing experience, as I'm sure you can imagine having read it. But I did come out the other side of it, I think, with a new sense of sort of fortitude about who I am as a person and the kind of work I want to be doing in the world and and not allowing myself to be scared or small or to sort of snip off pieces of myself and and bargain them away over time, which I think some of us can can find that we've done in the middle of our lives. And so so no, it's it's been a, not an uncomplicated journey and it's not an uncomplicated time right now, but I'm happy. That's author Maggie Smith. Her new memoir is You Could Make This Place Beautiful. Thank you so much for talking us through this, Maggie. Thank you.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. For months, France has endured ongoing strikes and protests over controversial government pension reforms. The strikes have at times brought the country to a standstill, and the protests have often turned violent. Yesterday, the French Constitutional Council approved a proposed retirement reform bill, and President Emmanuel Macron enacted it almost immediately. Jake Saganero is in Paris, and he joins us now. Hi, Jake. Hi, Miles. So what exactly is in these pension reforms? Well, the core of the reforms raises the retirement age from 62 to 64. The Constitutional Council rejected other aspects of the bill, such as a measure that would force big companies to report how many older workers they employ. And starting in September, the retirement age to collect a pension will be raised incrementally by three months every year until the age reaches 64 in 2030. The reforms also raise the monthly pension rate, and it has measures that account for physical labor-intensive jobs. But everyone has been really fixated on the retirement age, which is still below most European countries where it's 65. Of course, opponents were not happy about raising the retirement age. The French are very protective of the country's universal health care and generous social security system. You could probably even say it's part of their identity. And the idea is that you pay very high taxes in your working years and you get to retire at a relatively young age. But protesters were way more outraged at the way that the government forced the law through using special constitutional powers once it was clear the bill was not going to make it through parliament, which is why the Constitutional Council got the final say. And so that's a nine-member body that's also known as the wise ones. They're not judges, they're former politicians or high-ranking civil servants. And one is actually a former conservative prime minister, Alain Juppé, who tried and failed to change the pension system in the 1990s. Okay, so I feel like that process kind of shows how unpopular a move this is in France. What does all this mean for Macron? (laughs) Yes, so, you know, he's in his second consecutive term now, so he's not really worried about re-election in 2027. It certainly doesn't help his popularity rating, but Macron has said he doesn't really care about the price of unpopularity. That's how important this reform is to him. Macron has always been seen as a president for successful city dwellers and not really your blue-collar workers. He has weathered social upheaval when he changed labor laws by executive order early in his presidency, and he has weathered the Yellow Vest protests in 2019. This reform, though, seems to have really galvanized a broad swath of the French population, from young people to students and seniors and blue-collar laborers and white-collar workers. What are the other political parties in France saying about all this? So leftist politician Jean-Luc Mélenchon said on Twitter that the ruling showed the council is more at the service of what he called the, quote, presidential monarchy rather than the sovereign people. And far-right leader Marine Le Pen said that enacting the pension reforms would, quote, mark the definitive break between the French people and Emmanuel Macron. And, you know, political analysts have said that Macron has pretty much practically handed the keys to the Elysee Palace to Le Pen for the 2027 presidential elections. Are we already seeing protests in response to all this? Not like we've seen in recent months. Obviously, there were protests yesterday evening after the Constitutional Council uh, announced their ruling. But, you know, May 1st, which is Labor Day here in France, is just around the corner, and it's always a big day for demonstrations. Uh, The unions have vowed to keep the pressure on until the government scraps the reforms altogether. That's reporter Jake Saganero in Paris. Thank you so much, Jake. Thanks, Miles.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. On Boylston Street in Boston this morning, a solemn procession. The families of the Boston Marathon bombing victims, accompanied by Mayor Wu and Governor Healy, visited the two memorials on this 10th anniversary of the bombings. The explosions killed Martin Richard, Lindsay Liu, and Crystal Campbell. A public ceremony takes place at the finish line this afternoon at the hour of the explosions a decade ago. Today, people across the city are volunteering in community projects as a way to honor the victims. It's 52 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the upper 50s. Some showers likely tonight, lows in the upper 40s. Highs in the mid-50s tomorrow with a chance of rain. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. chch.org slash open house. And the Peabody Essex Museum presenting Spirits. Saren Sherpa with Robert Beer. On view now. Plan your visit at pem.org. Musician Questlove had always wanted to explore his sci-fi obsession. I just thought that I I can't write a book about time travel. Enter an unlikely partner, a crime writer. You know, it's not a Stephen Hawking dissertation. You just got to make it make sense. Essay Cosby and Questlove on their new time travel adventure for young readers, Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with services to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. President Biden is back in the U.S. after a deeply personal trip to Ireland, a trip he described as returning home. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith was along for the journey. When President Biden signed the guest book in the presidential residence in Dublin, he lingered for a long time, carefully writing out his words. He started it with a favorite saying of his grandfather, a well-known Irish proverb. Your feet will bring you where your heart is. After three days in Ireland, there is little question where Biden's heart is. Shoveling dirt at a ceremonial tree planting, Biden wondered aloud if his great-great-grandchildren would be able to visit the tree someday. Biden then rang a bell for peace and once for his ancestors. This This trip was partly about marking the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday peace agreement, which ended sectarian violence on the island. But for Biden, it was also about marking a personal milestone, returning to Ireland as president of the United States. If you forgive the poor attempted Irish, Tamashaw Walia, I'm at home. Only wish I could stay longer. (laughs) 
That desire to hang on to every moment was a recurring theme. Biden's ancestors left in the 1850s looking for opportunity in America. Last night in Balina, he received a rock star reception. Joe Biden. It was bigger than any rally he had during his campaign. All these generations later, Ireland and the values Biden credits to it are very much part of his political identity. Over the years, stories of this place have become part of my soul, part of my family lore. When he spoke to the Irish Parliament, Biden started by turning his face to the heavens. Well, Mom, <laughs> you said it would happen. Stateside, Biden quotes his late mother, Catherine Eugenia Finnegan Biden, constantly. And in Ireland, she seemed to especially be on his mind. It's one of the great honors of my career. to be here today. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. You have no idea what this, my greatest regret, I'm going to sound like a kid, but my mom's not here to hear it. Biden was wistful. I'm at the end of my career, not the beginning. The only thing I bring to this career after my aged, as you can see, how old I am, was a little bit of wisdom. Biden plans to run for re-election and told reporters at the end of his trip that he'll make the announcement relatively soon. He said his time in Ireland only made him more optimistic. Tamara Keith, NPR News. And now it's time for sports. The Washington Commanders go on sale with a big price tag. The hottest team in baseball? My Tampa Bay Rays. And the NBA playoffs begin. Here to talk about all of that, Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media. Morning, Howard. Morning, Miles. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, Let's start with the NFL. Huge news this week. ESPN first reported that the embattled owner of the Washington Commanders, Dan Snyder, is ready to sell the team. And I feel like there was a collective sigh of relief in D.C. His tenure has been defined by controversy, uh, mismanagement of the team, accusations of fostering a toxic workplace. Does this whole mess just get cleaned up by the sale? Well, it it can, and certainly I'm sure people in Washington who are big football fans want to declare this a national holiday. It's been a terrible <laughs> rain. This is one of the worst, one of the worst owners in the history of sports, and that's saying something because very few of them are actually any good. But you have to go back to Daniel Snyder. Let's not forget him insulting the Native American community by refusing to change the name of the team and then forcing, then essentially being forced to do so. You've got the, the toxic workplace, and yes, does this clear up having a terrible owner? Yes. Yes, but there are still uh, the lawsuit that is out there pending right now. There's still the report that has not been released about just to the, what depths Snyder has fostered this workplace culture. It's, it's really, uh, it's been a mess over there. And it's not just there. It's also on the field. 24 years, no Super Bowl appearances, no conference championship appearances, only two playoff wins in 24 years. This whole thing has been a complete disaster. And 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 really, I think that what it comes down to is people love that franchise, and he has been, uh, he has not been a steward for the franchise. He's been a, a a terrible, terrible owner. This is a great news for 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 DC, but also he bought that team for eight hundred million dollars and is going to sell it for six billion. So I'm sure people aren't weeping for him there either. Yeah, not too much pity. Um, let's turn to baseball now. 
My hometown, Tampa Bay Rays, tied the record over the last couple weeks for most wins in a row to start a season, 13 straight. And I'm wondering, 13 no start, should I start saving my money for the World Series now, or should I wait a couple weeks? Now. What's the plan here? No, you should do it now. I mean, they're they're a great team. They've been a great team. They've been knocking on the door for a few years. They went to the World Series in 2020, lost to the Dodgers in the shortened season. They've been to the playoffs four straight years. I mean, it's a franchise that, as you know, that has been known for what? The front office and really low attendance. But now we should be focusing on the players, especially Wander Franco. He's a generational talent. And this is a very, very good baseball team. There's nothing about them that you look at where they're, they're, they're a likable team uh, for the most part. People look at them and they think about the analytics and everything. But boy, they play the game right. They pitch. There's not an area in the game that they don't do well. And you know, when you win the first 13 games of the season, I mean, no one thought they were going to win 162 in a row. But that gives you a cushion that is pretty much going to almost guarantee you're going to make the playoffs. And once you get there, we'll see what happens. But they're a very, very good team. And then lastly, the NBA playoffs start today. They're long. We're going to be talking about this for the next couple weeks. But I want to focus on the first round, eight matchups. What's the one series that you're most excited to watch? Well, I'm going to talk about two things. The first thing I'm going to talk about is the Golden State Warriors. That's the series in the NBA to watch. The Warriors are the defending champions. They've, they were 11 and 30 on the road, but they're playing Sacramento. And the Kings hadn't won the world. The Kings hadn't been to the playoffs since 2006. And then the other thing I'm going to talk about really quickly is let's not forget about the Boston Bruins and the NHL. NHL playoffs start. The Bruins, 65 wins, 135 points. But you still got to go through Tampa Bay, who has been, you know, they've won the conference the last three years and two out of the last three World Series, um, Stanley Cups. Yeah, it's one of the best times in sports. Lots of playoffs, lots of games. That's Howard Bryant of Metal Arc Media. Thanks so much, Howard. Thank you. Caroline Polachek's new album, Desire I Want to Turn Into You, starts with a howl. Then, a declaration. Welcome to my island. Hope you like me. You ain't leaving. It's a fantastic pop album that doubles as an experimental look at some of our most basic human instincts. Desire, faith, lust. And the artist behind it, Caroline Polachek, joins us now. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Miles. Thank you so much for having me on today. And thank you. Welcome to my island, NPR's Weekend Edition. <laughs> I love it. I want to start with that opening song, that top section. I keep humming it to myself. It's so catchy. It's also really funny. And then it has this line right after desire I want to turn into you, which is the title of the album as well. I'm wondering if you can just tell me about that lyric and what it says about the record as a whole. Obviously, there's a total comedy in it, like to open the album with this like full Tarzan mode uh, and then immediately snap into this quite 80s phone operator voice. <laughs> a lot of the comedy in the song comes from the kind of code switching within it. But the chorus lyric, desire I want to turn into you, came completely intuitively without me thinking about it wasn't until a year and a half later that I really started thinking about what those lyrics meant and how there's a sort of paradox built into that phrase. All the sort of different meanings that you could take out of that line kind of hold the entire album within it. Well, you mentioned Tarzan, which I feel like when I was like writing notes for what I was going to talk to you about. You're I like, just... don't mention Tarzan. Don't mention yeah, Tarzan. No, 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 no. I wrote the word like primal. So much of this album feels yeah. very like 
getting back to like our basic human instincts. Let's listen to a little bit more of it. I want to turn to the first single off the album, Bunny's a Rider, which Pitchfork named the best song of 2021 when it was first released. Let's listen. Bunny is a rider. Satellite can find it. No sympathy. Ain't nothing for free. Bunny is a rider. No sympathy. But I'm so I mean, so so this song kind of centers on this central character, this bunny character. Who is she? <laughs> I guess the idea of bunny in this song is is just um, it's about being unfindable, elusive, playing by your own rules, not picking up the phone. Yeah, I, I kind of almost cosplay a bit a version of myself in which I'm much harder to reach than I actually am. The way you kind of walk this line between pop music and experimental music feels so unique on this album. And I want to play a little bit of a song called Pretty Impossible. Time's running out in it. Pretty the mayflies in the swimming pool at dawn. But down in the deep end, I can't be left alone. Sweet Eliza's on the court. Potential is the drug they never knew. So I kept playing the song on repeat, and <laughs> the more you listen to it, it like has catchiness, like a pop song, but it doesn't really have a traditional refrain, right? I mean, was that intentional, or did you go into thinking about this album that you wanted to play with kind of traditional song structure more? You know, I'm such a student of classic pop songwriting, and I, of course, still feel like there's more for me to learn. And, you know, you use the words experimental and, and pop as if they're at odds, but, you know, for me, quite frankly, I think a lot of music that calls itself experimental is very traditional, is using ideas that have been around since the 1950s, 1960s, even the same techniques, whereas pop music, all these definitions just feel completely ridiculous to me. I, I guess I just make the stuff that excites me and, and that I want to hear. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, Butterfly Net. Your voice does so much on this album, and I wonder how you feel like your singing has grown throughout your career, how you've kind of worked on it, and also how you were thinking about the production on your voice on this album, because it really feels like it is an orchestra in and of itself. The production always, always, always obeys the melody. And, you know, I'm I'm the only person who ever edits my vocal um, it's called comping, where you kind of take the bits you like from different takes and put them together into this patchwork of what becomes the final take. And for me, the comp is like a big, big part of singing. I almost have a very visceral response, like in my body as I'm comping, I can kind of feel what the version in my head is trying to do. And often it's only in the comp that that version comes together. But then of course, then you have the huge challenge of then learning how to sing it live. And then you have the thing that happens when after touring it for six months, you go back and hear the album version. You're like, ah, I wish I could have recorded it the way it sounds on tour because you develop so much style um, with songs as a vocalist. You learn how to like, you know, ricochet off little corners of things and little ski jumps to jump off of. And that's one of the most fun things about live is just very organically developing style. 
now we're getting into like a little bit of audio nerdery. But just <laughs> indulge me a little Sorry. bit because I'm like I've always actually wondered that about how much of an individual take are you on, on this album? Am I listening to as you're kind of moving through this? How does the like kind of mix of comping? Comping, yeah, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. How does that actually work in practice? Uh, well, you record each take. I mean, depending on the song, you can record start to finish, and then you go back. And I like to go line by line and check out each line. And the cool thing is, once you sort of get halfway in the song, you start noticing patterns. You're like, hmm, I'm using a lot of take five. A song like Butterfly Net, which we just listened to, for example, because it does have this croonery, balladeer kind of feel, I wanted that one to be quite raw and leave big, big chunks, so whole sections of that song untouched by any edits. Whereas a song like Bunny is a Rider that's so percussive, so rhythmic, I want each breath cut off, each syllable cut off to be exactly right. And that doesn't always mean right on the metronomical grid. It just has to be right where it feels right. So a song like that that's really rhythmic, I'm going to get pretty microscopic, yeah. So Caroline, you have just started a U.S. tour. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how touring kind of shows you new aspects to these songs. Do you find that playing them live, you discover new things? Or how how does touring or playing these songs live change them for you? A handful of these songs in the album, uh, I actually started touring long before they were out. And the live process actually shaped what they became on the album quite a lot. I don't know, it felt kind of like an old-fashioned way of working um, in a time when productions can be so crystallized in the studio and then interpreted live. But also, you know, my audience loves to sing. And I feel very lucky for that because, I don't know, not only is it extremely fun for us, but they also just sound great. Like, I love the audio aspect of all these voices joined in on the music. So shout out to everyone coming to the live show. Well, I can imagine specifically on Billions, like that yeah. part at the end probably is like so epic live. Billions, and then there's a song called Blood and Butter that has this big anthemic chorus to it. And that one, sometimes the audience is louder than me on the chorus of, which is so fun. That's Caroline Polachek. Her new album, Desire, I Want to Turn Into You, is out now, and she is on tour as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Miles Parks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof. Streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. Next at 10 o'clock, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, here on 90.9 WBUR. Join Science Friday, April 18th at City Space for a free science fair. The event features educators, engineers, and scientists trying to find solutions to climate change. For tickets, go to wbur.org events.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com and Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Luke Burbank expressed some skepticism about a new law in Utah that keeps minors from using social media. I don't feel like there's a strong history of keeping people off of websites. Well, the thing is, I'm Peter Sagal. You don't have to prove anything to listen to this week's news quiz with champion beatboxer Kayla Milady. Join us for Wait, Wait from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.